Well, Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the proclaiming of your word, the heralding of the good news as it is, Lord, and I pray that you'd make me faithful to speak nothing that does not come from your word, and I pray that you'd make us as a church to be faithful to respond to your word with, with faith and obedience, and Lord, I pray that we would respond the way that sheep would respond to the voice of a shepherd who laid down his life for them. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn. You can be seated. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Now, we've already seen as we've been going through uh, uh, 1 Samuel and then also now through 1 Chronicles, we've already seen that there is a specific gift that the Lord gives his people in giving them a Messiah. Now, we're, we're recognizing that, that David is the anointed king, and anointed means Messiah, or Messiah means anointed. And we're going to use a little M right now because we, of course, know he's not the great and final Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the great gifts is that he is the representative of the people. So God turned Israel into a kingdom so they could be given as a people being given to the king as a possession. So Jesus, or Jesus, David possessed the people of Israel. They belonged to him for him to represent them. And that means that he could do things on their behalf and it essentially count for them. And so we've seen some lovely things that, that God did through David. The first Messiah with a permanent throne. We saw that he established peace for Israel. He gave them safety. He essentially gave, them a, he, he gave, gave uh, David a huge sword to protect his people, to expand the boundaries, to create a place, a land, earth, for them to worship the Lord in peace and safety. Then he establishes worship again before the throne of God. He establishes this. He brings the ark to the midst of his people. This beautiful thing that God would do through that one man. And it before all of the people. And today we're turning to a portion of God's word where on the face, it looks like exactly the opposite of that is happening. Where instead of being blessed for the righteousness and the, the goodness and the accomplishments of that one man, the Messiah, they're cursed because of his lack of righteousness. David sins and punishment falls on the whole of God's people. So let's read 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We're going to read the first seven verses. Read with me. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah... 
470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in their numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. First question that we're, that's begged from this, this passage is, what is wrong with this? You know, why, what was wrong with this action? David's giving this census of the people. What, what was wrong with counting his people? Our census is, sensei, uh, sinful. No, they're not always sinful. Uh, there are a whole bunch of examples, and we read from some of them, didn't we? In, in First Chronicles, God numbering his people. We're, we're really grateful that the Lord numbers his people and that we're numbered among them, that he knows who they are, not one will be lost. So what's going on here that, that brings the wrath of God upon Israel? Well, the first thing we can see as to why this is wrong is this comes from Satan. Nothing good comes from Satan. This is Satan's idea. And, and, and we're not exactly sure how David received this temptation. But what's very clear is that David knew it wasn't from the Lord. He knew it wasn't the Lord's idea. Even in fact, Joab warned him about this. Joab and David both knew this was not from the Lord. There was an indication that this was already an evil idea. It would be something that displeased the Lord. There's no indication here that David was surprised that it displeased the Lord. Now, we get a bit of a clue here as to what specifically was wrong with this. Not only did it come from Satan, when we recognize that he was, he was counting fighting men. He was numbering fighting men. So after Joab finishes, kind of finishes the census, he clearly indicates that it was fighting men that were the point the whole time. Verse 5, those who drew the sword in Israel, those who drew the sword in Judah. And so perhaps this is evidence that David was trusting in the strength of his army rather than on the strength of the Lord. And that's particularly disgusting since the Lord had continually worked military victories for David in spite of how many men he had. And so we can look at this from the idea of wicked intentions, doing a perhaps right thing with wicked intentions. Even doing a thing that itself is not forbidden in the word of God can be sinful because of your motivations. Now, it doesn't work in reverse. You can't do a bad thing for good reasons, and then that counts as righteous. But it is possible, and actually very likely, that even doing something that is not forbidden in the word of God for a wicked motive, that makes it evil. For example, being thrifty with your money, it's not it's not ungodly to be thrifty with your money. Perhaps you're doing it so that you can be generous and kind. You can be hospitable. But perhaps you're doing it because you really trust in money rather than the Lord. But, but what it looks like is probably going on here is that David is dishonoring the value of the Levites. And I'm going to show you why I think that is. It looks like David is dishonoring the value of the Levites. So we see this, that, that Joab obeys the king's orders, but against his wishes, he doesn't count Benjamin or Levi, two of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now that might seem like a spite to David, kind of like a, a massive, uh, uh, passive aggressive, stick it in your, a stick a finger in your eye kind of reaction, but probably there's more to it. And for that, we can turn to Numbers chapter 1. You can go to Numbers chapter 1 if you want. 47, we're going to read a few verses there. See, Israel had received instruction for counting fighting men. How do you count fighting men? If you're counting all your army to see how big it is so that you can know, uh, you can compare it to the size of armies around you to prepare for battle, how do you count them? We see this in Numbers chapter 147. But the Levites were not listed among them by ancestral, their ancestral tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi shall you not list, and you shall not take a census of them among my, the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall take it up. And if an outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the ta testimony so that there be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, did it according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So here, when you're counting the troops for battle and comparing them against enemy troops, you're not to count the Levites as fighters. Now, why is this important? What is the value of a Levite? Because the Levites protected Israel from something more dangerous than Philistines. Or Ammonites, or Canaanites, or Perizzites. They protected Israel the people from the temple being unclean and therefore protecting the people from the wrath not of the Canaanites protecting the people of the wrath from the wrath of God they were how the Lord made it possible for a sinful people to enjoy the presence of a pure and holy God they offered sacrifices for sin of the people and they kept the temple they could fight, and sometimes they did fight. It wasn't wrong for them to fight. But you should never think of them as ordinary fighters. Their job is too important. And now we understand, don't we, this last year, the term essential worker. This year, that phrase is one that we probably never heard, but now we understand this. No one likes to hear that they're not an essential worker, unless you're very lazy and you don't want to benefit other people. But we understand that the things that... There are things that you can do without for a week or a month, and there are things that you cannot do without for even one minute. And so for David and the people of God, they needed to see the service which the Lord provided through the Levites, this temple and the sacrifice. They needed to see that as essential as oxygen. So it's kind of like if you're on a spaceship and you have a, a group of people who are set aside to make sure that everybody gets oxygen. The oxygen people. And then you're like counting and making plans because you get another spaceship is attacking you. Of all the people that can be removed from their jobs to be assigned to defend the ship, who are you not taking off their jobs? The oxygen people. <laughs> because you're not fighting anyone for more than a minute without oxygen. And so this is kind of 
why, why uh, God forbids the Levites from being counted among the ordinary fighters. And so Joab didn't count the Levites, and it says it's against the orders of David, which is an indication that David wanted the Levites to be included in this count. And so perhaps David was forgetting that the fear of God was more valuable than the fear of men. That rather than worrying about the Canaanites or the Philistines primarily, he needed to realize that it was the sword of the Lord he needed to be more prepared for and care about. Now perhaps this was just him trusting in his swords. Perhaps it was pride. Now the question is, why then was Israel punished for David's sin? How was that good? Now we could see we could see on the, on the reverse, we love the idea that God provides a man that his righteousness and his goodness would be counted for all the people. We love that idea. But why is it in reverse? Now, we've already seen in, in Jordan's sermon uh, last week in particular, we already saw that there are things that people, people of Israel would have already known about this history because they've already got it in another book of the Bible. And so we can learn from 2 Samuel, the same account in 2 Samuel 24, we can learn some things here that help us fill in the gaps about what's going on here. And so same passage or same account, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 says this. Same, same account. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the question is, what came first? David's sin or the sin of Israel? And the answer that we get in 2 Samuel is that Israel sinned first. And God responded to the sin of Israel by putting their federal head, their representative, to the test. And so God sends Satan after David to test him. Now, instead of just treating Israel one by one and just now smiting them all immediately, Israel sinned against God and now he could have just dealt with Israel as a whole, individually or maybe as a whole. He could have done that, but instead what does he do? He focuses his attention, he lasers in his attention on their Messiah. I'm going to send Satan to test their anointed king. And that's how I'm going to deal with their sin. I'm going to focus in on the righteousness or lack of righteousness of that man. Now remember that God built mankind initially. He bought them so that if they fell, they could be redeemed by one man, which means he, built, he made us as one creation. We were created as in one creation with Adam. It's not like Every single time there's a new human, it's a new creation. No, we're all one lump of clay with Adam. We're not waiting for every baby to see if it's going to be made in the image of God. No, that baby is in Adam. It's an image bearer of God. And so God built humanity that if they fell, one man could redeem them. One man could represent them. We saw this is now happening again with Israel, and now David being their anointed king, a man to represent them in terms of righteousness. 
And so David's sinning was something he did as their representative. Very much like Adam's sinning was doing, he did it as our representative. Now we see that this is not unfair when we look at David because remember, Israel's sin came first. David was pretty much a very perfect representative of the people because he too was sinful. He did what they would have done. In fact, he did what they already did. And instead of going just straight and dealing with them, he sets up this situation where he puts their representative to the test. And that was a mercy on Israel. Focusing their judgment on one man as the representative. Because if he succeeded, it would count for the whole nation. And if he failed, really, they're no worse than they would already have been without them, each individually with their own sin. And so this is a good gift that God does. Now, God is not the author of evil, but he is the author of history, which includes sin, which includes evil in order to accomplish God's purpose. We saw this in the story of Job as well, if you're familiar with the story of of Job. Satan accomplishes God's purposes in Job's life. And so this helps bridge the gap to understand what's going on in 1 Chronicles 21. Did God incite David to sin? Or did the devil? We know that God sent the devil to accomplish something for God's glory and for the eternal good of his covenant people. And this should remind us of the great, the temptation of the great Messiah which was also ordained by God using Satan. Many hundreds of years later, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would also stand on the earth as our representative, the Messiah, the royal kinsman redeemer of God's covenant people, the Lord Jesus Christ. And after his anointing and baptism, he's driven into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted, just on his own, to be tempted, just... Jesus and the devil, no, he's tempted as our representative, as our covenant head, to be tempted on behalf of all who belong to him. And now why did Satan target and tempt the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Was it God couldn't stop it from happening? And he was powerless to do it? Or perhaps maybe it was God could have stopped it, would have been, it would have been morally wrong for him. He was obliged to let it happen not even close. This was planned by the Lord that our covenant representative would stand in our place, tempted by Satan, and it count for us. It was good and glorious that that judgment of God focused on the actions of one man. And where Adam and David fell to this one temptation, representing all of their people, the Lord Jesus Christ prevailed. And that's good news for all those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our royal kinsman, redeemer. This is good that God sees Israel's sin, and and when he sees Israel's sin, he directs his attention to the actions of their current Messiah, David, at the time. That's a mercy, because it makes them redeemable as a whole by the actions of one Man. Brings us to our second point. 
which is it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So David realizes his sin, and he, he comes to his senses, and he's given three options for the judgment of God for the people of Israel. And he intentionally chooses the one which was putting them into the hands of the Lord God. So let's read 1 Chronicles 21, and we're going to read 8 to 15. 8 to 15. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in what I, and, and that I have done this thing. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And God spoke to, to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working the destruction, It is enough. Now, Stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. David chooses to be punished by God because he says, God is merciful. Now, it is true that God is more merciful than men. You can probably remember a time when you were judged unfairly by people. People who were judging you by a standard of righteousness that was changing, that was perhaps hypocritical. Maybe last week the thing you said was acceptable, the next week it's unacceptable. Maybe they assumed that you did something wrong and you didn't. Maybe they assumed you did something with impure motives, but your motives were also pure. And so David is right. It is better to be judged by God than by men. He is a fair and just judge. He will never give somebody a judgment that they do not deserve. But what David gets to see here is not only is God more merciful and fair, God is also more holy and he's more just and he hates sin more than men do. It's actually a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment. Now, it's true that sometimes men are unfair judges and they condemn people because of partiality. So it might be true that somebody judges you because it's for their benefit. Somebody condemns you because it actually helps you out. But sometimes the reverse is true. A corrupt judge is somebody sometimes who pardons people because he has affection for them. He has a special relationship with the judge, and so therefore the judge acquits him, and injustice carries. Perhaps a judge is going to pardon somebody because it might help their re-election campaign coming forward. But there is none of that with the Lord. 
You can never make it worth his while. You can't bribe him. You can't tell him what you're going to do and that count as a reason why he would pardon you. You can't say, but you love me. God is a very just judge. He's not like human judges, which on one hand is a benefit, but on the other hand, it's actually more terrifying because there are also times when everybody thought you were innocent, but the Lord knew you were guilty. He knows the hearts. And so the wrath of of God fell heavy on Israel in those three days. 70,000 men, fighting men presumably, died in three days of an epidemic. Out of a population of 1.5 million fighters, Do you know what the population of Manitoba is? It's about that, isn't it? So that's an epidemic that kills 1.5% of the population every day. 23,000 people per day died in Israel. Think of Manitoba. 23,000 people died each day of that epidemic. This is an indication of what the Lord God thought of the sin of his Dearly beloved people, the apple of his eye. Because God's justice isn't set aside by his love. His love doesn't make him unjust the way that it does for human judges. And so it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That was to be reminded of that in the book of Hebrews. God will not give people worse than they deserve, but he actually knows what we deserve. He knows our hearts which makes us guiltier than any man has ever accused us of being. And that takes us to our third point, and that's this. David asks the Lord for the sword to fall on him instead of on the people. Let's continue reading verse 15 to 17. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, but as he was about to destroy it, The Lord saw and he relented from the calamity and he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand a sword drawn stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces and David David said to God, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and have done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. God had already provided Israel covenant head to represent her before him. And David embraces the Messiah role of representing his people, and he asks the Lord that the sword fall on him instead of now the people of Israel. And see, we see now here, this is a glorious thing that the Lord decided to focus his attention regarding the sin of his people on the righteousness of one man. God gave David eyes to see what was really going on, and when David realized what was happening... Now, beforehand, he was probably focused on the swords of the Canaanites and Philistines around him. 
But now his eyes were opened and he saw what was true and that the angel of the Lord stood above Israel, above Jerusalem with his sword, the sword of the Lord God's wrath and judgment hanging, suspended in the air over Jerusalem, about to strike it. And when David saw that, no amount of bargaining. He couldn't claim that he was innocent. All he could do is say, take me instead of them. And I wonder if you noticed what came first. We've already seen what came first. Israel's sin came before David's sin in this case. But I wonder if you noticed what came first. David's repentance and prayer or the Lord's compassion and his decree to freeze that sword in the air. First, before David repented, first God gives the command out of compassion to freeze that sword of judgment in the air. He left that sword in the air about to come down on his people. And then David repents and offers himself in place of Israel. See, God had built Israel with the office of of covenant head really built in already, one who could stand in her place and take judgment instead of her, and it would count as if he received it. And David, for the moment, was in that office. That brings us to our fourth point. The Lord suspends the sword in the air until an altar and sacrifice can be placed under it at great cost to the Messiah. Let's read from verse 18 all the way to verse 1 of chapter 22. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me as a, at full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it and let the Lord... Take, take that let my lord the king do what seems good to him see i have given offer, uh, oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering i give it all but david said to ornan king david said to ornan no but i will buy them for the full price i will not take for the lord what is yours nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing so david paid ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site and david built there an altar to the lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the lord and the lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering then the lord commanded the angel and he set and he put his sword back into its sheath at that time when david saw that the lord had answered him at the thresh at the threshing floor of ornan the jebusite he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to acquire the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. And there is where the temple of the Lord was erected. I want you to notice that the Lord did not reject the idea of David's offer. But he did choose to have David, uh, he chose not to have David take the blow instead of his people. So it was God's plan all along to 
pause, to hold back, to put off the judgment of his people until a suitable substitute was in place. See, it was always God's plan to suspend that sword and wait until the Messiah could put a suitable substitute there before it finally fell down on his people. So God instructs David to buy that land, set up an altar, purchase a sacrifice, and God patiently waited. God delayed. He held back the wrath until that sacrifice was in place by Israel's Messiah. And so then when all this is in place, David's responsibility as Messiah, at the place where the sword of the Lord was suspended, waiting to come down, when all of that was in place at just the right time, when the animal had been sacrificed, then the sword of the Lord is put in its sheath, and the Lord sends fire from heaven to consume not Israel, but the burnt offering. This shows that God's people are not the people who do not deserve punishment. They're also not the people that God loves so much that his, their sin doesn't bother him. They're not the people that his love means he doesn't punish. No. They're the ones who God, in his mercy and his love, he holds back the hand of damnation until the Messiah puts a sacrifice suitable in their place. And then and only then does he bring his wrath. Now that cost David a lot of money for the land and for the sacrifice. But God, we know now that God was not in fact pouring out all his wrath on that altar. He was providing a sacrifice as a covering for sin to further put off their judgment until, as Roger read for us this morning, until just the right time so that God could be just and the justifier of those who have faith, justifier of sinners, until the sacrifice of his son was in place. And that sacrifice was the heir of David. David may not have known what he was saying when he said, let me and my house, me and my heirs, take this punishment instead of Israel. And so the Lord Jesus is the one who offered his own life, not just some oxen that he had paid for. He is the one who said, punish me instead of my people, God. And so when David offered his life, God the Father responded by telling him to set up an altar and, and put an, an animal there as a sacrifice. But when Jesus did, when Jesus offered his life, God the Father didn't turn him down. He instructed him that he was indeed the substitute, the one who would take the sword of the Lord, the blow of the Lord's vengeance and justice and wrath against his people's sin. And so after the cross, brothers and sisters, the sword no longer hung of God's wrath, never hung over God's people anymore. It wasn't even just merely put back in its sheath because that sword came down full on the Lord Jesus Christ, landing full strength, never, ever, ever 
to be lifted against his covenant people again. Now, how did the Lord demonstrate that he accepted David's offering? By sending a fire from heaven, participating in the, in the, the sacrifice. Now, how did the Lord show that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice? Earthquake. Eclipse. Dead people walking around. But ultimately, on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead, I accept that sacrifice. My people are justified. I'll never raise the sword against my people because it came down on my son. No matter who you are, your sin and God's holy love for righteousness and his hatred of sin, it means that the sword of God's justice hangs over you. No amount of bargaining is going to do. No amount of repenting and life change would do. No amount of promising to make it worth God's while is going to do. You can't even claim that you've tried your best. Even if that were true and it's not, it still wouldn't be good enough. It's so foolish to think that the Lord would, would be like a man. It's foolish to think that you'll face God like a man on your own two feet and I'll take what I deserve. That's so foolish. Look at what happened to that burnt offering. That's what would happen to you. Don't think that facing God based on how good of a Christian or a person or citizen or neighbor or brother or child, don't think that your result will be any different than that bull. But if you still have breath in your lungs, there is evidence there of God's patience that he has delayed the sword stroke of your judgment, of your sin and your rebellion, and he is waiting until a substitute can be put in place. And the only one he provides is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can be added to him by faith. And then and only then would it be safe for the, the sword of God's judgment to come down because the Messiah has put himself under the sword before it comes down to hit you. So dear Christians, this also teaches us to not embrace rebellion. Don't join in with the rebellion of the devil. Join in with the sin of the world. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Consider how not just the sin of his enemies angers the Lord. Think about this, what this teaches about the sin of of God's people even. Do not delight in those things that will bring the wrath of God ultimately. Even if you are reconciled to him, don't join in with him. Don't play around with being an enemy of God. And don't treat being his child redeemed from sin, having a Messiah, don't treat that lightly. But Christians, there is no condemnation. Everyone who trusts in the gospel of the perfect life and death and resurrection and the reign of the Lord Jesus, you can rest assured that there is therefore no condemnation for you. Not because God felt like ignoring your condemnation. 
and he might later get to it if he's in a different mood. No, because he loved you and he bore your condemnation for you. Merely forgiving your sin uh, by denying it would have been a denial of his own character. And then you'd always wonder, well, he denied his justice earlier. Maybe he's going to deny his mercy later. And so because the Lord Jesus offered himself instead of your sin, you can be confident that there will never be condemnation for you because your punishment happened in the past. So do not fear, dear Christian. The Lord knows your sin. It's not that he hasn't figured it out yet. He dealt with it even before you knew about it. He paid for it with something much more costly than 600 shekels of gold with the precious blood of his only beloved son. Well, you might wonder if somebody paid 600 shekels of gold, maybe, maybe that's just not good enough. Maybe it will be 1,000 shekels, but would you ever wonder if the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was precious enough, was valuable enough for the Lord? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful even as you teach us to fear and we, we realize that your love does not mean that sin will go unpunished, Lord. We thank you for uh, the fact that you have opened our eyes to the fact that a sword hangs over everyone, the wrath of God for our sin. And yet we rejoice, Lord, that you have provided a kinsman redeemer, a Messiah, to first face temptation instead of us. And then it count for us. And then to put himself willingly under the sword of your wrath so that his beloved people would not have to be smitten by it. We thank you for that love. Lord, I pray that we would hate sin the way you do. And Lord, that your holiness and your love would lead us to repentance and in confidence that we would worship you as the one who has redeemed us, not at the cost of 600 shekels of gold, but the cost of his own blood. Let us worship you in light of that incredible love. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.